Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last week, I was mindlessly scrolling through my phone while walking over to Blister HQ when I was suddenly stopped dead in my tracks. The well-known and well-loved park skier LJ Stranio had posted on Instagram a photo of a letter from NASA that was congratulating him on being accepted as an intern to the Armstrong Flight Research Facility. Wait, what? I stopped to try to remember what the date was. Was this an April Fool's joke? No, it was actually the 18th of July. And then I remembered that the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and Neil Armstrong's moon walk was just two days away. So obviously LJ was just making some joke about going to work for NASA while simultaneously giving a shout out to the moon landing, which wouldn't be at all out of character for someone who's been being funny in line traveling circus videos for years. But I looked at the letter again, and then I looked again at what LJ had written along with it. He said, quote, I'm so excited to find out that I've been accepted as an intern for NASA at the Armstrong Flight Research Facility for this fall. I will be helping write code for their project, developing their fiber optic sensor system, FOSS, end quote. Okay, that doesn't sound at all like a joke. But how on earth does a park skier from Vermont this star of lines traveling circus, this guy who once served as Vin Diesel's stunt double, and this guy who has a 29-minute crash reel that is, if we're being honest, almost as hard to watch as it is inspiring to watch. How does this guy get accepted to work for NASA to write code? And this is exactly why we shouldn't pigeonhole people. I knew LJ to be this super likable knucklehead who had a thing for destroying himself on rails and pillars, a guy who seriously didn't know when to quit. But I clearly didn't know the first thing about LJ. So I reached out and LJ was gracious enough to set me straight and the result is this fascinating conversation with an extremely interesting, bright, dedicated and passionate guy. And seriously, either before or after you listen to this conversation, please promise me that you will go watch LJ's real ski video and real attempt video if you haven't seen them already. Real Ski is an impressive 90 second edit that LJ submitted for X Games and Real Attempt is a hellacious 29 minute crash reel that is the absolute embodiment of flat out full on commitment. LJ and I talk a good bit about Real Attempt, and he shares some things about the filming process that he hasn't talked about anywhere else. It is fascinating. LJ's entire life is fascinating, and I am very excited to share this conversation with you all, which is a conversation that took place just a couple days ago as this park skier slash stuntman slash traveling circus star was taking a break from studying for a big exam he had the next day, on algorithmic complexity. So yeah, this is a good one, and here we go. LJ, how are you today, and where are you today? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I am currently in Tigard, Oregon, which is a little suburb outside of Portland. What What brings you to that neck of the woods? It's a, it's a number of things. I was, I was I lived in Utah for 
uh, my entire adult life. And uh, I'm back in school right now. So in the summers, at least, and I knew I was going to be kind of planting, planting roots for that for a few years. Uh, and I thought just ready for a change of pace from from the Utah life, uh, somewhere I can ski in the summer and still go to class, you know, in the same day. So uh, Oregon seemed like a great place. And my girlfriend was down. So that was that. So where are you currently going to school? Uh, I'm currently a student at Portland State University. And um, what are you currently studying? So I'm a post-bachelor student. I, I attended University of Utah and got degrees in film and English. And then decided to go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And now I'm studying computer science. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. That, that's quite the spectrum. Yeah, I, I absolutely <laughs> love it. Uh, but it's, yeah, I went from writing papers on, on novels from the 1920s to uh, writing algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I love that kind of thing. And to me, that just is kind of representative at like winning at life. Henry David Thoreau has this comment that it just comes to mind often for me. And he said, I love a broad margin to my life. So this is a big reason why I wanted to reach out and talk to you, you know, in particular right now, because we're going to be getting into this. We're going to be covering a uh, talk about somebody who has had a broad margin to his life. I think that that sums you up pretty well. But the timing here is you shared a pr some pretty big news. Yeah, my uncle actually planted the seed that computer scientists, students at least, uh, it's really important to get an internship. And I, I really hadn't thought about it over the last few years in my education. Uh, and then he planted that seed and I just started thinking more and more about it. Uh, and so I've just been actively pursuing uh, internships before I graduate. Uh, and somehow someone at, at NASA bit on my resume. Uh, and I had a little chat with my future mentor. Uh, and they, they offered me a position. So I'm going to spend my fall uh, as a computer science intern at NASA Armstrong facility in the Mojave Desert. <laughs> that is amazing. Also, just kind of amazing in that it lines up, right? We are just celebrating, literally just celebrating the 50th anniversary of Armstrong's moonwalk. Yeah. Uh, so the, the timing just all feels very poetic, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, I was really nervous. It's a kind of a big move for me to, to do anything, even if just for a few months, uh, that's based on something that's not ski related. Uh, so it was a really big decision to me for me, uh, as awesome as it is to even accept it. Uh, but, you know, listening on NPR every day about all this stuff and going on NASA's website and reading all these, uh, you know, transcripts and them releasing all this different media and even some of the code for the lunar module uh, has just gotten me so excited to go dig my hands into some uh, some code and and be a part of such a legendary uh, organization. So, you know, you're, you're giving credit to your uncle in terms of applying for this internship, but I guess I am curious if the space program stuff, has that been something that's been a newer interest of yours? Or is this something as a kid that was always uh, always of interest? 
I would say I have like the layman's interest. Like I've always thought it was really cool. Uh, you know, I listened to like a lot of podcasts about the history of NASA. Um, but I would say that not more than not more than any other general enthusiast. Um, it was more that I saw my skills uh, that I was developing finally align with something that I found really interesting uh, and saw that I could now uh, be a part of it. And uh, that aligning was just too perfect of an opportunity to not try to go be a part of it. <laughs> I just want to kind of walk through some different elements of this very interesting life that you are currently stringing together. Where did you grow up and what were you sort of into as a kid? Yeah, uh, I grew up in, in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, it was just, you know, kind of a regular suburbs kid, uh, maybe a little wild. And, uh, you know, my parents started me skiing super young. They got into it when they were in college, uh, but fell in love with it themselves. They moved from Pennsylvania. Uh, so I was skiing at like two or three. But at the time, skiing for me was just something I did in the winter. There was no freestyle aspect. What I really fell in love with first was rollerblading uh, as a little kid in elementary school. Um, and I started doing flips on rollerblades pretty young, like nine or 10. Uh, and then I, I heard about ski boards and it seemed like rollerblading on snow for when I couldn't be rollerblading at the skate park, you know, when there's snow on the ground. Uh, and that is kind of, that's what kind of brought me into, you know, I slowly transitioned to skiing and then all of a sudden rollerblading was the thing I used to do and skiing was all of a sudden what I wanted to be doing tricks on. So it was a fairly quick introduction to the skiing world or progression into the skiing world. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I was like all the other action sports kids, I guess. I, I definitely, I skateboarded a ton, rollerbladed a ton. Uh, there's lots of cliff jumping in Vermont, but I just, I wanted to do all the action sports. I snowboarded a little bit for fun. Uh, but I think, I guess my, my sister, I, I got really into ski boarding and was doing flips on those. And my, my older sister was part of her ski team and was a really strong skier. And I remember her calling me out being like, you can't, you can't even carve. And you like are so worried about being, you know, this good skier who can do all these tricks. Like, why don't you do these tricks with skis on? Uh, and that kind of gave me a little, I guess, peer pressure was a big part of my progression through life. And that was a, the next year I bought skis and was like, I'm going to do all my flips on skis now. And then also, you know, race you down the mar down the mountain. <laughs> so how, like, give me a sense of how old are you at that point when your sister is pushing you, <laughs> peer pressuring you into, uh, you know, taking the tricks to, to the ski world? This is a, probably about, uh, I would guess that I'm like 12 or 13, uh, so I was really line. It's funny. Line has been my biggest sponsor, my whole ski career. Uh, I've been with them. I don't know, 12, 12 or 13 years now. Uh, and when I was little and skiboarding, I was skiboarding online skiboards. And I just remember flipping through those catalogs, these little booklets of all the skiboards every year, but they also made skis. Um, and so, you know, when my sister called me out with this, I saw that they made these like these shorter skis that were still skis. Uh, and so ironically enough, it was, it was seeing that in the same skiboard catalog that I had been reading for the last couple of years that made me realize that I could still be on like, you know, these cool twin tip, uh, you know, you can still ski switch and stuff on them, these twin tip skis, but also, uh, be doing it on, uh, 
I guess I have nothing wrong with skiboarding, but to, to some other people around me, a more respectable medium. Yeah. Uh, so by high school, I was by high school, I was fully a skier, you know, middle school was the tra- elementary school. I was a rollerblader. Middle school, I skiboarded. It was like my pubescent awkward stage. And then by high school, I was just a skier following, you know, reading Freeze magazine, uh, watching all the videos. Just for the record here, when you're talking about ski boards, this is what much of the world refers to as snowblades? Uh, yes. So that's a common <laughs> misconception. Uh, okay. Thank so you for clear. The yeah, floor no is worries. yours. Yes. Clarify, please. Yeah. So this is a, as, as a, you know, as a ski board nerd uh, and someone who spent a ton of time with Jason Leventhal, who, who invented the product uh, or I guess the sport kind of. Um, so he, he's the one that really made the first very short ski board and named it ski boards because he saw aspects of snowboards that were really cool but wanted to apply it to skis. So the original snowblades were his ski boards named after being kind of a similar shape to a snowboard, but for two feet and much smaller. Solomon made snowblades uh, and it was kind of a rebranding. They were kind of trying to, you know, it was a HD DVD versus uh, Blu-ray kind of deal, Kleenex versus tissue or whatever the other. So they came in and Solomon was huge. So a lot of people heard snowblade. There's actually a common uh, wrong name that people use. Uh, some people call them ski blades, which is a mixture of the two. It's kind of a little more derogatory. Uh, you're like, oh, you're a ski blader. But ski board is actually the, if you want to give the the naming rights to the, the dude who invented it, uh, ski board is what it's called. But anyway, it's not a big deal. I like it. No, it's good. Thing. We should... Credit where credit is due. So we'll, we should, uh, you hear that everybody out there? We should be calling these ski boards. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Oh, I appreciate it. It's always good to have the record set straight. So thank you. So, okay. So I'm not hearing you talking about some racing program or racing background or parents used to drag me out and I just didn't like speed suits, that kind of thing. This is not a part of your story. Not at all. I was, uh, we had a, we had a, a free bus that left at like five fifty in the morning that drove all the way up to the mountain to kind of promote getting these kids from, you know, Vermont's big city, uh, up to the resort. And so we'd wake our mom, I wake my mom up every morning at, you know, every weekend morning at five thirty, and she would drive us out in zero degree temperature to the old school bus that barely ran that would pick us up outside the skateboard shop. Uh, and, you know, we were on our own from from that point till like 6pm when we would get home on weekends. And that was like daycare for me. And it was just me and my friends. You know, we skied a lot of woods and moguls on the East Coast. Uh, and like before before the park really developed at my home resort. Um, but yeah, I didn't have any kind of formal I did end up joining my race team in high school. But that was long after uh, I had kind of chosen my path in the ski world. I'm trying to think of other conversations or people I've talked with who were, I don't know, say initially kind of in on the park thing and then went into race. It's usually kind of the other way around. Yeah. And a lot of it was, uh, like I said, peer pressure was a big part of what got me to do things. And I wanted to be, I wanted to, for some reason, I've always felt like I had something to prove. Uh, and I wanted to be a strong skier. Uh, and you know, the the other skiers that I was skiing with, some of them did have a race background, and I really looked up to them. Uh, all these kids that at my home resort, 
uh, and my sister as well. And they all had some racing background and I just wanted to prove that I could do it all and that I was a, a strong skier. So, you know, I still, it was also a good excuse to go. Like everyone says, I joined my race team and then I just skied the park the whole time. Uh, I didn't take it super seriously, but it was an excuse to get out of school, uh, you know, learn some some good fundament, fundamental skills, but also, you know, just get a ski more. So at a certain point, and I think this is a part that perhaps a lot of us are, well, a whole lot less familiar with, but your contest participation in history. I mean, I think so many of us know you from traveling circus and real ski, but talk to me a bit about the contest uh, scene for you. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, even though my success hasn't been rooted as much in contests, uh, I was super interested at, and then when I was younger, I actually spent uh, one one winter of high school at uh, Waterville Valley Academy. Um, and while I didn't end up returning, it was a it was like a pretty pivotal season for me. Um, I won one of the the Cyber Cartel Young Gun Open stops, which is really what jump started my whole career. Uh, and so not being a contest guy, I kind of owe my whole career to this one run uh, that I did in Canada that the the winner got a one year contract with Cyber Cartel, which is one of the the really cool core outerwear companies at the time st started by Mike Nick, who then, uh, you know, moved to a Raj, which people are probably familiar with. Um, and then in conjunction with, uh, you know, Scott Goggles, Level Gloves, and of course, Line Skis, uh, which so that's sponsored. That's how my sponsorship with Lions started, and it's maintained all these years since. Uh, it started from you know becoming trying to be a slope style skier, uh, and even after high school into college, um, I was I loved going and trying to compete in the Dew Tour every year. I was in the I you know I did Dew Tour for the first few years that it was around. Uh, I even did I actually made it into Dew Tour half pipe the first year they had it and not slope style, uh, and so spent spent some time trying to learn how to half pipe ski, uh, which was crazy. It was during the Dumont Tanner Hall period. So I, you know, as like a teenager finding myself, you know, not placing well, but all of a sudden competing against these guys in an event that I wasn't even serious about was, uh, it was cool and super exciting and, you know, furthered that idea of trying to do it all still, I guess, within skiing. But, you know, I was also filming a bunch throughout all this along the way too. Uh, and you, I guess you tend to, you tend to go towards your success, I guess. And so, you know, the more I competed and the more I filmed, the more I was getting invited on more film trips into less contests, which kind of led me down the path that, that I've come down to now, I guess. As you feel, like you just said, you feel like you're kind of starting to get funneled toward the filming world. How old are you, how old are we talking here? I mean, now I'm probably... Uh, I'm maybe like 20 or 21. It's even kind of, it's kind of blurry still then because, you know, around this time was kind of when I was at the most success for competing as well. Um, you know, the, the Olympics aren't around yet, but the idea of like a U.S. team and stuff are starting to form. Uh, and so, you know, I was talking to some of the, the U.S. team guys that were starting to form it. I, I got a last minute stop, a spot to the, before the Olympics were held, they wanted to hold a world championships event, which uh, for most Olympic sports, that's the second biggest event for their sport. 
Uh, the Olympics is the biggest. And then on the other, every other off year, uh, the world championship is the, for like, you know, aerialists, moguls, and every other Olympic sport. That's like the big contest you're trying to compete at. So they held one of these four year, two or four years or something before the Olympics started as a test event to show to, you know, the IOC and FIS and all the organizations that look, we can hold like a professional quality event with athletes from all these different, the different countries. And it'll, it'll work if we do it in the Olympics. So I actually got to compete in one of those. Uh, the first one ever, which was the one that got watched by those organizations and decided that they were going to have the Olympics. Um, and it was one of the ended up being one of my better results. I got sixth place in that it was like negative 20 that day and just brutal. It was super aggressive. Um, <laughs> so which was crazy. Uh, but you know, the week before I wasn't even on the invite list, I was filming urban in the Midwest with poor boys productions. Uh, you know, I hadn't hit a jump in a couple of weeks and then, you know, I bought a last minute plane ticket. They were such PVP were such cool guys. They were like, yeah, bail, bail. Like, this is a crazy, crazy experience. Like go do it. And so you know, I went from hitting urban rails to hucking dubs and negative 20 weather all of a sudden. Uh, and then, and then, you know, it was like, uh, you know, not, I guess not on the podium, but up on the stand with like t- taking pictures and stuff and then calling them back and like, should I come back? Like, is the snow melted? Should we keep hitting rails? And they're like, no, we're planning a new trip. Like on to the next. Uh, so, but I, I guess, you know, that was around the time where, you know, a sixth place finish in a contest isn't as, isn't as epic as like a, you know, a segment that's getting written up in a magazine or something. So as much as I wanted to have, uh, you know, a hand in, in both jars, uh, you tend to go towards the other. So I didn't even see it coming really. Uh, people weren't specializing quite as much then at the time either. So the, there really wasn't a a necessity to have to choose. It was just, if you can pull it off, then do it. Uh, you know, the generation before mine, Tanner Hall and guys like that, it was, it was, it was normal to film and to compete all the time. Uh, and I didn't realize that I was going to be kind of the last generation when I was younger, at least to, to feel like I should be doing it all now, you know, it's not, it's rare. It's rare that someone is filming and competing. So I've kind of lived through the transition, which is kind of a bummer and sad, but that's what happens when people get really, really good at the one thing they do. Um, and so I didn't know it, but you know, two or three years down the line, I was going to be, my, my contest career was going to be, uh, you know, non-existent, completely unknown. And I was just going to be always a film guy. But for me, I always look back as, uh, you know, being someone who tried to do everything. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just changed so much. And it's, it's cool because when people specialize, you really see how far you can push those limits. So, you know, now the contest guys are doing insane things and, and film athletes are putting out insane video parts that would, you just couldn't do those things if you were splitting your time. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful to have been part of that, that time, I guess, when, when you could. Uh, when you could do a little of everything because there's so many different fun ways to ski. Uh, there's just so many fun things to do. It's, it's a bummer that you have to specialize um, in some senses. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this topic recently and, and I'm reading a book called range by an author named David Epstein. And 
the entire book is exactly about this, right? And, you know, when you're saying like, look, the specialization, on the one hand, you're saying you're kind of like, it's a bit of a bummer that we're being funneled into increasing specialization. On the other hand, you just said, that's also why we're seeing outrageous things in these particular areas or disciplines. And Epstein's book, which I'm only about three quarters of the way through, but he's actually making the case that we have to be very careful about when we start to specialize. And, and in fact, he's kind of arguing that if you start specializing too early, ultimately the absolute pinnacles of achievement in different areas are performed or happening by people who didn't specialize too soon. And so I, I, I don't have, I don't think there is an algorithm to this per se, but I think it is really interesting to think through when do you stay broad? When is it best to stay broad? And then when does it actually make sense to go quite narrow and focused? I think those are, I mean, for anybody who has, you know, any parent who has a kid or any kid thinking about these issues of like, how broad do I go? How narrow do I go? Those are big, pretty life-defining things. Yeah, I've, I heard a study once that, uh, that you know, the kids that start skiing and don't develop their, they didn't play baseball or something as a kid, uh, and then start skiing and, and just skiing at the age of 10, there's actually uh, skills and, and motions and coordination related things that even though they're not directly related, uh, strongly impact down the line when you start, when you start. So yeah, I think you need to learn how your body works in, in more ways than one. So yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, and I think, I think there's evidence that shows that, uh, and not even just in sports, but just all things in general as well. I mean, that's why when you're a kid, you, you take all sorts of classes in school, uh, and you need these foundations, even even if I'm going to be a computer scientist, I'm going to need to know how to write documentation. I, you need to know how to talk to people. Uh, I think that's an argument for why a lot of parents like to send their kids to public schools is because, you know, sometimes it's good to be in these sometimes awkward or confrontational uh, situations that, you know, can't necessarily, you don't necessarily see and can't necessarily be taught. Uh, not that, like you said, not that one is better than the other, um, but Sometimes it gives you a full dose of this, uh, I guess, ether or something that you don't necessarily see, but uh, is like quintessential for for growth and whatever it is you're talking about. A hundred percent. Yeah. And and Epstein's book, this book range is doing a great job of maybe demystifying that, like what you just said, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of vague, but there's something there, you know, having these different conversations with different folks who maybe have nothing to do with where you think you're headed. Um, he's actually kind of showing time and time again, how those things are actually critical to development. I mean, and it's back to that Thoreau line. I mean, you know, Thoreau, I mean, he's writing this in like 1857, but that line, I love a broad margin to my life. And it's like, yeah, I think that's actually there. It's not just that we're being dilettantes, right? Like let's do a billion things and never get any good at any one thing. But it's like to actually get really good. And we've, Epstein is showing time and time again, the highest, highest achievers actually resisted that temptation 
to just go super narrow. And um, I think it makes for a really rich life. And I think, again, as we get back to talking about your story, I think that's what makes this life of yours so compelling, right? It's like park skier. And then it's like, you know, I, I, I actually a few minutes ago, I was like, oh, so you didn't have the race background. And you're like, well, no, no, I didn't. But then you're like, yeah, actually, though, I did race in high school. It's like, OK, we'll blow that up. And then I think <laughs> there's probably some people who are like, oh, yeah, LJ, like, you know, filmer right and traveling circus and then you're like contests were really important to me in my development <laughs> so it's like let's just keep smashing these preconceptions maybe uh i think that's always fun but um okay back on track you mentioned that you know there's all kinds of fun to be had in uh, all different types of skiing if we're going to talk about skiing and fun i think this is a nice time to talk about traveling circus because uh, I still stand by that. I think this is like the most fun thing in skiing, maybe. And uh, I'd love to hear you talk about traveling circus when you first got involved. And, and uh, yeah, let's let's cover some of this territory. Yeah, uh, it's, it's ironic because traveling circus started out as like, you know, the thing we did when we were bored and like there was no contest or film shoot to be on. I was like, yeah, I'll. I'll come like you guys are like shooting in your backyard or something. Yeah. Like let's go, let's go like goof around a bit. Um, but it's really, I think it's so it, it's turned into something that's so relatable and so to the core of what I think is so important to skiing, just having fun with your friends that it's, it's actually blown up into, you know, the, one of the most defining things in skiing for me. Um, but it, it really started out as Will Wesson and Andy Perry, not wanting to get jobs after college and pitching to Jason Leventhal, the the founder of line, uh, you know, they weren't even trying to get paid. They just wanted to have him kind of pay their gas money and they would drive across the country for a few months, putting off the job market uh, and make a video of them skiing. Uh, and people just loved it and it was super successful. Uh, and it, you know, it didn't just blow up overnight, but it was the kind of thing where it was like, all right, this, you guys are onto something. Let's do it again. They got Shane McFalls, uh, the filmer for, you know, the first, I think like maybe like seven seasons, uh, involved. And he had a really, uh, a very specific style and aesthetic to his filming that was really fun. Uh, and it just slowly snowballed, uh, and it's just something that everyone wanted to do that it brought more and more people in, uh, and kind of like-minded people. We just wanted to have fun. And, uh, I think the, the lack of pressure to do something cool or crazy was what helped, I guess, became the catalyst for us finding weird and creative and stuff that was fun to watch. Uh, so uh, yeah, I just it kind of just snowballed and and grew and grew into this monster that eventually I feel like it's just I think its success is rooted in that it's it's just so relatable. Uh, you don't even have to have ever skied to watch it, and you're gonna have kind of a good time watching it because you know we're having a good time, uh, and you know hanging out with friends and doing what you love. That's just so relatable, and I think that's just what's what's grown it to what it is. As you think back about traveling circus so far. What stands out? What are what are some highlights for you? I mean, man, the one trip that really I'll never forget that really blew my mind was kind of around that transition to like going from a couple of guys in the backyard to being something where 
they want to actually give us a little money to do something. Uh, one of the first years that they were able to leave the U.S. to shoot one of these, uh, we decided we would rent a van in Europe and kind of kind of do the exact same thing, but in Europe, I guess, for, for a week or two. And I somehow got invited to come along. Uh, and it was just, you know, it was just madness. We were all like young, dumb kids, but somehow got the opportunity to have our own van in Europe, which Shane crashed into. He crashed into this. There was a, a bus driver, like a big bus driver, parked in a parking lot, just eating a sandwich with like the big glass windshield in front where it's just flat in the hole. It's a double decker style. And, you know, he's pretty young at the time, too. He's like in his early 20s and he throws it in reverse and just smashes this winds windshield like you know within to a couple feet of this dude this super old guy eating a sandwich uh and like scared him half to death and you know there was like a scary insurance claim and we were so scared that line was gonna like pull like you guys are way too immature to be doing this uh <laughs> but but the trip was you know so we were just like we were just very out of our element which adds to the hilarity and fun but it was just so exciting and epic and then you throw in that it was one of the most insane snowstorms over this two weeks that Europe had ever had. And, you know, we're, we're known for like doing weird, weird rail rail stuff and goofy features. We just ski powder the whole time, man. It was just huh. nonstop <laughs> dumping. Uh, so, and we were just living in an RV, a bunch of stinky guys that we were so wet from skiing pow every day that we, we'd bring our stuff inside and crank the heat. And it was so humid inside that our stuff would seem dry, but that you'd step outside and your goggles would <laughs> instantly fog every morning. Uh, but it was just, it was, you know, we just drove around random cities in Europe as a bunch of guys in our late teens and early twenties, finding places to ski and just, I mean, we were just living the dream, man. I, that's like the cliche, but uh, it was just it was just one of the most epic trips and it had all of the the struggles and stress and and last minute successes that you would that you would want uh and it just came out to be such an adventure you know breaking windshields smashing skis uh getting stuck in deep snow with our car cuz we didn't have snow tires and and just skiing powder every day with our friends and, and being gross and disgusting and not having a change of clothes and, <laughs> and everything else <laughs> along the way. So where is traveling circus today? I mean, how much time is being spent thinking about trips uh, and the like, like, give me some sense of where we are. Yeah. So it's funny because that baseline that was established, uh, is so I feel like it's hard. It's actually more difficult to maintain something that you've established than it is to to uh, to to create it in the first place. Um, so what started as if you watch some of the earlier episodes, you know, the first season or two, uh, they're maybe not as mind blowing. Uh, but I think the perception of traveling circus is kind of culminative. So, you know, even though there's some early episodes that weren't as good, if you're general perception of traveling circus is this like super epic always creative always funny thing that's like a hard target to hit every single episode moving forward so you don't see it as much but these guys spend so much time meticulously planning now stuff that you know translates on the screen to like andy smelling like poop and someone <laughs> eating something that had mold on it uh but a lot of it is 
you know, it's not, it's not faked, but it's, it's recognizing when, when you can create a situation where something funny is going to naturally still occur. So, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to force and contrive these, uh, these situations, but recognizing that if we go into that weird, like pawn shop over there, something funny is going to happen. Uh, and so they spend a lot of time planning to try to make it just as funny and just as an epic too, and, and creative as, as not only the last episode, but of anyone who regularly watches of the, their perception of traveling circus and Jake Strassman, who's, who's taken over the reins as the filmer. Now, I think he's just really, he's really done a really good job of coming in and recognizing that and trying to keep it going. Uh, I have, I have trouble recognizing when Shane, Shane had such an awesome specific aesthetic and style to his filming. And as a layman, I, I have trouble noticing when Shane's filming stopped and when Jake started. And I think that just speaks to, um, it's ironic, but the effort and hard work these guys put into looking goofy and having fun and just messing around. So can you tell me anything or give us kind of a teaser about the upcoming season? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, people always worry like, oh, is Traveling Circus going to end? Like, we, we don't want it to end. They know we're all, you know, getting older, but still love doing this. Um, so it is it is nowhere near, uh, it's nowhere near dying. It's still, <laughs> we still all have the intention of doing it as long as we can. And actually, we filmed an episode this winter that is kind of a throwback to, you know, the roots of Traveling Circus. Uh, I can't give any... I don't want to give too much away, but you're going to see some traveling circus heroes uh, from over the years, maybe maybe make an appearance or two. And, and just we spent a lot of time uh, back on the East Coast, which is where we all grew up, uh, doing a lot of the stuff that, you know, traveling circus was originally known for uh, a lot of goofy stuff. So uh, I think next season is going to be really strong. It's going to be a good mix of those new traveling segments to foreign places, but also uh, the one of the episodes I was a part of that I'm really excited about that we'll see drop in next fall is is just a a great throwback uh, to the East Coast and in good times and what we all grew up loving doing while we're skiing. <laughs> awesome, that's gonna be fun. Do we do you do you know yet when is that gonna be dropping? I think they start dropping them either at the end of August or beginning of September. I don't know exact, they probably don't know exact dates, but early <laughs> fall for sure. Okay, well, as we continue to run through this uh, life resume of yours, Stuntman is on <laughs> there as well. And I think I would just be remiss uh, to not ask you at least something about this. I mean, it's been a few years now but uh, you had a pretty bizarre and remarkable experience, uh, yeah, working as a stuntman for Hollywood in the Triple X film. Talk to me a little bit about that. How, how bizarre does that seem or what stands out now? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, the further away it gets, the more, the more glad I, I did it and the more, the more I think like third person perspective I get on how ridiculous it was uh, <laughs> just because yeah it was just such a spur of the moment experience and, and opportunity that is the kind of thing that you don't know what you're getting into but you know you definitely have to say yes uh I didn't even know they were gonna pay me I was just they were, they were like stuntman Hollywood Vin Diesel I was like yep 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 
Samia, like uh, Carl, Carl Fosfett was actually the head guy with uh, the Sweetgrass film guys who are so such rad guys. Um, and he, you know, he had other stuff going on and just, there was some, there's a little bit of bad vibes with, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the Hollywood guys are super serious, not, not the Sweetgrass guys. Uh, but you know, he had other stuff going on. And so he was kind of looking for someone to, to sub in and I just happened to run into him. And like, you know, a day later I was in the Dominican Republic trying to help these guys set up ski stunts in the jungle. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was a wild experience, man. And, uh, there's just, you know, a million stories and, and a million crazy aspects of it. But, uh, I look back on it as this awesome, cool experience where I got to experience what it was like to be a stuntman really, really quick. But when I really think about it, I remember that it, it was really stressful, really dangerous and really scary. Uh, and I took it really seriously. They, they told me the first day I shot, I think they had like, they had a helicopter in the air, a drone in the air, like 10 teams of three guys, uh, a chase car, like a, they had like a Porsche with a, with a crane on it in this chase car. They said on the stunt days, the most expensive days, cause they have, you know, like special effects, arts department, stunts department, pyro, pyrotechnic department. They have all the departments in, on, on point. They were saying like a, it's like a half a million dollar day, which came out to like, it's like. I want to say it's like $10,000 a minute or something when they're, oh when God. they're shooting. Uh, and so I just remember every time I fell, I like did the <laughs> math and I remember like, cause reset can be like 20 minutes sometimes. And I just remember like and that, that number set, I never, I always quote myself saying like remembering, quoting the guy telling me that and try to do the math. And I'm like, Oh, I, I must be like misremembering it. But then I do the math again. And I'm like, no, it was like, sometimes when I fell, I knew it was costing the studio like tens of thousands of dollars on that fa failure. So it, it was really stressful, but uh, now that it's just like a fun, cool story, I, I love that it happened. Uh, I feel like life is just a chance to try to try to collect as many different experiences as you can. Uh, and that is one that I would be blown away if it came up, if the opportunity came up again, I might not even <laughs> take it. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad I did. I'm also so glad it's done uh, and that it was successful and that I'm alive and that now I can just be like, yeah, I, I was a stunt double for Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, you should, I, if that, if I had that, that would definitely be on my business card. Like whatever else I did <laughs> in life, I'd just be like stunt double for Vin Diesel. I, uh, I, in my, when I, when I went back to school, I was in a calculus class and it, the teacher had us all write down something something interesting about ourselves and i wrote down that i was vin diesel's stunt double and the next day in class he was like just so you guys know i do you know i want to get to know you guys and so you know the ones of you out there writing making stuff up on these note cards like you know take it seriously i'm i'm just here to like i want to get to know you guys i want to have a good semester someone wrote they were vin diesel's stunt double like i do read them just so you know and I just, I just was laughing to myself. I'm like, that was true, man. I didn't say anything. I just let it go. But I, I, so I just don't even, unless it's like some kind of like party story, I just don't mention it anymore. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> then there's real ski. And man, this is the thing that like, personally, I had certainly known of you from traveling circus, but it is just my own story. Uh, 
when the, I guess it was the 2017 Real Ski edit came out. And then what now, I guess we're calling, I just always called it LJ's Crash Reel. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's now, people can find it and we'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes to this episode. But I think it's now branded as Real Attempt. Yeah. This is wild, man. And honestly, full disclosure, this is also probably when I saw the news about the NASA internship. I just was like, (laughs) this can't be the same guy that I watched destroy himself for like 29 minutes. So anyway, let's back up. Talk to me about this. I think... People who know and who have seen it know exactly what I'm talking about are probably nodding along with me here. But talk to me about this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think the, the, the moral of the story is wear your helmet, kids. <laughs> you are going to hit your head. Um, but but yeah, man, it, when they I always wanted to be in some kind of X Games event and touching back on the contest. I had one contest where they were giving away an X Games spot and I got second by half a point and didn't get that X game slope style spot. And that was my, that was like my 10 year old dream to just, I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to be in some kind of X games event was my childhood dream. I didn't care about medals or anything. Uh, so when I found out that ESPN was doing X games, real street, where you can compete to for an X games medal by doing urban, I was like, sweet. This is something that actually, that actually came a little more naturally to me. But the year before the, the selection of the first year, I just didn't do a lot at urban that year. I was starting to feel a bit, a little bit of stagnancy and doing the same thing every year and did a lot of traveling to ski that year and skied a lot of powder. Uh, And so I didn't get selected and I was devastated. Um, So that was fuel for the fire. And I just worked my ass off to, to film with level one. And thanks to them, I was able to uh, put together you know, one of my better urban segments that year and got a spot in the 2017 real ski. And I just came into it. We were, I was just so hungry. Uh, Jake, the filmer for, for traveling circus actually ended up being down to be my filmer for our real ski video. And we just came swinging out the gate. Uh, as soon as I got my invite, I had just started to go back to school, immediately dropped out. I was, I was three weeks away from the end of the semester. I had put like, you know, a couple months at this point into these classes, just, just withdrew straight up, dropped out for the semester. Real ski was my life. There was in, there was like three inches of snow in the Valley in Salt Lake, drove to Salt Lake. Jake drove there. Snow was melting. There was nothing. And we, one of the more memorable shots, I think was the, the backflip to pillar thing that we did. Oh my God. I hadn't even done, I hadn't even, I hadn't sat in a chairlift yet that year. I hadn't done a backflip. I, I barely like done any skiing that year it was just like backyard stuff uh you know up in the passes when they got in their first snow and we set that feature up with no snow on the ground and i had no idea i was just going to try to stall it and i was just so hungry i was like i think i could flip onto that uh and everyone was like dude don't try it i couldn't even stall i was falling trying to if you watch the real attempt video which which i'm kind of getting to now which is a all of the crashes from our are making this this video uh, put together it really puts in perspective what goes into making these videos. But I couldn't even land on the thing straight air, and people are telling me, "Do not do this. You're going to get hurt." And I did. I, I 
I fell on some broken glass on the landing Ugh. and I needed to get stitches. I was bleeding in my elbow, wrapped it up with duct tape and we kept going. I was just so hungry. It's the hungriest I've ever been for anything in my life. Uh, and somehow landed one of these backflips onto the pillar um, and rode away from it. And then I, I just, I, everyone went and got burgers and I went to the urgent care to get stitches, uh, which, which I had for actually, people don't know this. I actually, I had stitches on my arm for about half the shots in our real ski. Um, and it just went from there. It was just me and Jake. I had money. You normally you're a little cautious about money, where you're going to go, maybe whether this trick is worth it. All of that was off the table for me that year. I was just, I, I had the craziest tunnel vision I've ever had. Uh, and, and so this real attempt video that you, you're talking about is actually, you know, the video we put together was awesome and we love making it. It's one of the best videos ever made. Uh, you know, we, we got, we got a bronze medal in the X games, which is, one of like it's got to be like one of my biggest life accomplishments i'm like i'm just i can't believe it i'm so stoked but i think even more what got even more notoriety was was this is jake's idea he was like dude i have like hours of you falling so viciously like people need to know like you know our 90 second video is beautiful but the beauty is in like all this work and effort you put into it and so he just you know that was one day and then like a week later he sent me a link and he'd put together every single crash over this you know like six or eight week period and it's it's hundreds it's maybe thousands of falls that i had taken day in day out uh and i think i think part of at least like you know my instagram followers or something one of the things that i i get the best reactions from are when I try to be like honest and real and, you know, not the badass, like I'm this raw guy, but I just try to be honest and let people see that I'm just like a regular guy and what, what my life is like. Uh, and I think that makes me more hopefully relatable than, you know, you're like Sean White or something who, you know, I assume he lives some kind of rock star lifestyle or, you know, I don't see him lapping with like his buddies opening day at some random resort. I like to remove that abstraction uh, and this was just for who I am. And I think this video does this. Uh, you see that I'm just a regular dude throwing my body against a wall over and over again. Uh, and that 90 seconds is like a whole lot of luck and like a whole lot of like not stopping. I think that's kind of that like not trying to bridge this over to my education, but surprisingly enough, I've found that that work ethic, even though, it was derived from doing the sport I love. It stuck with me. And when I study, when I am like studying for an exam or something, which I'm doing right now, uh, I feel like I've that, that work ethic was from hitting urban rails over and over again and really wanting something and recognizing that I don't think I'm like the most talented. I'm definitely not the most talented skier. I'm not the smartest guy, but uh, I think I'm one of the most motivated and my, my parents were always really adamant that I'd be passionate about something and find something, find something I'm passionate about because passion, passion is a requisite for motivation, which is not necessarily a requisite, but is a strong factor in, in success and, and like self-development, I guess. Uh, and so, yeah, I was just really passionate about putting this video together. And I think that video shows that. And I think I just showed that anyone could probably put that video together, but it's not that I'm a good skier. It's that you have to be willing to throw yourself against something a bunch of times. And I think that people weren't, 
people aren't impressed with how good my skiing is. They're impressed with how bad I wanted it. And that video, that video, I guess, yeah, to, to the short version is, I think that video defines me not as a being a good or bad skier, but as a driven skier. What you say really resonates. And I think in life, I mean, my little take on this, you know, is you, a person needs to be very, very careful when they decide to go all in and push all the chips into the center of the table. But I do think that successful lives are defined by maybe it's that one time or those couple of things where it's just like, I'm going to do this or I am going to die trying. And I think the sobering thing about real attempt is it's like, I mean, dude, I just watched it again yesterday with my girlfriend and I'm scared for you. I'm scared for you. And it's like, well, I know he's okay. You know, this has been a while ago. And I guess I want to come back to, I mean, there's two things in particular. So the opening trick onto the pillar and then the kinked rail. <laughs> and I, you know, you've said like, I've wanted this more than I, you know, I wanted this more than I wanted anything. I was hungrier than I've ever been. But I mean, it's one thing to kind of metaphorically say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get this thing done or, or it's going to kill me. Or it's like, dude, you actually kind of were in a position, the pillar in particular, <laughs> the is so high consequence talk to me about that. Are you like, nah, man, I'm actually really good at falling. So I wasn't worried about breaking my back or neck. Or you're like, listen, man, I was locked in. And like I told you, I just was hungry. And I just wasn't, it wasn't about the consequences. So I think the reason I haven't had a career ending injury, and I've had relatively few injuries is because I like to be, it doesn't look calculated, but I, I like to think very carefully, gather as much information about what I'm going to do as possible, make a decision. And then once I've made that decision, you need to stick that to, to that decision, unless you've gathered more pertinent information, but you need to leave emotion and stuff out of it. So I think the second one you just described, the kind of go for broke is I, I thought about it. I made my decision. I think the big difference was I, I think I was in a place where I had the ability to do it, which I guess is kind of you know, assessing and gathering information. I wouldn't recommend going for broke if you don't know you can do something. But I was, I was, it was kind of like the culmination of all the urban I had done in my life up to now, where I could kind of be a little more reckless uh, and, and still try to calculate things. But I was in a position where I could go for broke and, and maybe get away with it. And so I did. And I, it was definitely just, it was definitely just being rec like it was just being reckless most of the time. Uh, and, you know, I, there was still decision making in there. But I think the best way to sum it up was just I was going for broke. I turned my brain off for sure. I just I really, really wanted it. And, you know, being a being a freestyle skier, you learn to face fear like very early on and, and turn that part of your brain off. Uh, but it's good to have still. It, it tells you when you need to check yourself. And I just turned it off altogether uh, and, and got lucky that I didn't. I actually, on the, I forgot, I also, I partially ruptured my Achilles tendon hitting that too, actually. That's something I haven't really told anyone, uh, but there was on nothing. On the pillar? Could, yeah, on one, of the, on one of the hits, I do one of the early backflip hits. I didn't get a good pop, and I actually slam into the front of it a little bit. That slam was so forceful that it 
forced my my heel up out of my boot a little bit like most of the way and I guess it it put like a lot of aggressive pressure on it and uh it, it wasn't like a, a bad it, you know it was it was mild or whatever but he was like you're definitely at high risk for for tearing it all the way through now and if you do you're gonna need surgery uh so I just you know I was doing some stupid stuff and I was getting the feedback that I was going a little harder than I maybe should but I I really wanted it <laughs> Was your crew, how how much were they like, seriously, dude, stop? Like, we don't want to be a part of this? Or how much did they trust you? And if you were saying, dude, I got this, I'm good, I want to keep going, they just would say okay. I mean, that's where it's like so important to have. I always say like, I always want to make sure that Jake gets enough credit in this because your filmer is not just your filmer, I always say like, we're a two man team and I do the skiing and he does everything else. He's not only the filmer, he's a shoveler. He's like, he's my psychologist. He's my caddy. You know, he's watching and he can see things from that third person perspective that I can't see. Uh, and so it's this fine line that he has to walk between like, you know, telling me to stop and like not interfering with like the process because it, it might happen. And I think he did a really good job doing that. Uh, I think, you know, he never told me to stop, which is good. You know, I never died and I wouldn't, you know, I, I got a few small injuries that didn't stop us from filming. So I think he, he walked that line well. Um, but he would sometimes hint to me, I think, and I kind of picked up on it like, hey, man, like, this is really gnarly. Uh, and I would take, I would make it, you know, I would take it or leave it and that would be that and he would leave it alone. Uh, and so I have, I've, you know, I've never actually asked him, but I can't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it was really hard on him too, to, to watch me do some of the stuff. We had some other guys help us, Jake Doan and, and Kai Crapella, who actually was also competing that year. And Kai was on the phone with a sponsor at the time. And I just remember him telling me, like, I heard him in the background being like, oh my God, I can't talk right now. Like LJ is doing something like insane. Like, he's just like, LJ, like you shouldn't be. Dude, like don't do this man like and just look in my best interest like looking out for me uh so i yeah it's just a mix man i i don't know i can't imagine <laughs> have your parents watched it uh I th yeah i think they have my parents my parents are like super they love watch they love everything about my ski career and watching it and being invested in it and i think you know at this point they're pretty used to it uh but it scares them like i broke my kneecap when i was 22 in finland and they didn't even know that I was in Finland. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think I called my dad and was like, he always makes the joke now, if I get a call from John or LJ and he says, you know, he says, don't freak out. If it starts with I'm all right or don't freak out, like, you know, he's going to be on the other side of the world because uh, he got that phone call. I'm in Finland. I broke my kneecap. They want to operate. Like, how can you help me get home? Like I, my parents... I owe so much to my parents because he got me home and I got surgery with my doctor in Utah and it all worked out. But they are, they are mental champions because <laughs> I've put them through some shit. I, I also have to ask you about the kinked rail uh, from, from Real Attempt. And I mean, if the pillar is where I was like, please stop, LJ, you're going to die. The kinked rail, I was... It's just that to me, maybe more than the pillar is the 
absolute case study in like grit. Yeah. Uh, so that actually ended up being the feature, not only in that video, but in, in the entire course of my life that I've taken the longest to get a trick. Uh, I think it took me like 476 tries or something like that uh, over the course of maybe three or four days. Um, but we'd actually found that rail uh, like a week before the end of the contest and we skipped over it because it didn't really seem possible. I had done some rails similar to it, but this was like a way gnarlier version of the other ones I had done. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we were like, you know, we need to get a couple more shots and there's a good chance I won't get that rail at all. I don't, and if I start hitting it, I'm not going to be at a stop. So we just left it alone. We got one or two more shots and our video was looking pretty good. And we were looking to be done a few days early. Um, but there was kind of this area of our video that was kind of, we didn't have like, we didn't have like an, we didn't have like the insane, absolutely insane technical rail that would be like kind of the cherry on top. And so, you know, we sat after, after eight weeks of going hard every day, we were sitting around at Jake's house. It was like negative 20 that whole week without wind chill. It was insanely cold. Um, so we were happy to be inside, but we were just, you know, couldn't sit still after all these weeks. And so we were like, well, let's just go try it. Uh, and, you know, even after just a first few, first few hits, uh, I knew it was going to be super difficult and that I was going to have a hard time giving up. The only thing is we had like a hard deadline. So there was a good chance that, you know, I would have to give up if we didn't get it by the last day, he needed a couple of days to edit and it would just, you know, we literally couldn't go back and still have the video be finished. Um, but there was one hit like day two or something uh, which was already, I was probably already deeper into attempts than any other rail I'd ever hit. It was probably a couple hundred hits in that I got to the very end of the rail and fell over. And at that point, I, it sucked because at, up until then, I, I could have said like, this rail is not really possible. You know, I could have made an excuse or something. But at that, that was the point when I was like, well, now I know the rail's possible. Now I'm screwed because now I can't leave. Now I have to get this rail. And like, I, we're going to have to keep coming back every day and we're going to just be, you know, I can't give up early on a day. We're going to have to be here from like 8am to like when it, the sunset every single day now, because I, I know it's possible. I have to get it. And it was, that was a mental struggle, man. Like I felt like I had mastered, you know, working hard at something and failing over and over and over again and like sticking it out. Uh, you know, cause when you develop, like you said, like grit or something, um, I kind of feel like it sticks with you and you kind of have it figured out to a degree, but I learned that there's like, there's always another level. And this, this pushed me past like for sure anything I'd ever done. And it was just like, I would just like, we, I would go for like an hour and a half and then I would go like, I would throw my skis and go walk into the bushes and like break down and just be like, you know, like a slobbering, you know, I'm not like crying, but I'm just like, like just like in such a bad mental place there's n i can't quit and i can't get it like just there's there's no option there's like i'm stuck and just so frustrated and, and it was just yeah it was just really difficult and i had to just dig deeper than i had before and then the last day we went back and it was just you know this is after all of these injuries after all of the other shots we had gotten to this point uh we went, i just something felt different and you know, I did a couple a couple warm up hits. I took off all my layers because I hiked enough times that the negative twenty was feeling warm finally. And I 
I think Jake was like picking up on it. I did, we neither of us said anything, so we didn't like want to ruin the moment. But I like felt like it was just going to happen. And the fifth day, I think yeah, I think it was five days actually, and fourth or fifth day, whatever the morning of this was, half an hour in, I just found myself lock into the rail, and and I just knew it was I was going to come right off the end, and and I did, and and that was it. And it was like the perfect way to end the video because it was one of the most difficult shots. And it was that last shot that we needed. Our, our video was done and we went home and it was a huge load off and I'll never hit a rail that many times again. So I'm, I'm <laughs> glad that I've done, I've done the big one. I will not hit something 476 times again. I hope. <laughs> 476. It's like there was, you know, there's like some old proverb, right? Like fall down seven times, get up eight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, I I haven't seen the one about fall down 475 times, get up 476. I mean, dude, it is, it is to call it next level is not even, it's just not even doing justice. So if there's anybody out there who doesn't, hasn't seen this yet, doesn't know what we're talking about, I'm telling you, like, I don't, I've never seen anything like this. And a, a kind of technical question I wanted to ask you about you know, watching this again, I kind of was like, I want to ask LJ, like, what was the crux on that rail? You know, you think about climbing, right? And climbers, when they're working on a, on a, on a route that is at their level or a bit beyond, there's the crux. But, and I was curious, one, whether Jake was strung together these 476 attempts I don't know if Jake strung those along chronologically. They are. I believe they are. Okay. So so knowing that, it wasn't like you were always getting three quarters of the way down, and then there was the one sticking point. This just looked like all crux to me. It, I love that you just made that climbing analogy because you actually hit the nail on the head. And I actually always i'm not a climber but i've climbed a little bit uh and i always i always uh compare hitting urban to to like a bouldering problem or something um because you do you do have to find these different parts that you need to figure out and, and it is such a mind game because like you said even though you are figuring out more and more of the rail it's a mind game because it's not like every next hit is going to get there plus a little further you still have to get back to that point but you figured out the the little tricks that you need to do to get to that point. I think what will kind of defines the crux is the relative difficulty to the rest of the stuff that's going on. And with this one specifically, there there's definitely a crux to this rail, but I think its difficulty relative to the rest of the rail didn't stand out as much, which is why, you know, I could be hundreds of hits in and still screwing up at the first kink. Um, so it wasn't just you know, check the box and move on to the next part of this rail that's giving me trouble. Um, it, it was the second down. And so I actually, uh, we had a few, so like I was saying, uh, this video is incomplete. There's actually a few attempts where Jake put the camera down and we worked the second half of the rail where I put my skis on. Jake literally lifted me onto the rail and held my hand. And no one knows it. I haven't told anyone this, but I would hold his hand on the rail and then he would give me a little push and I would slide the second half of the rail uh, to get a feel because the second kink was is like a 90 degree kink almost. It was like super aggressive. And I was getting to this point where I was finally making around the first kink, 
but then wasn't ready for the second kink and didn't really know what to expect. And I had all this momentum from the first part of the rail that it was terrifying and I just, I wasn't prepared for it. So we spent a lot of time warming up on that. And then, so I actually slid the second half of the rail, having, having my hand held and dropped in, you know, a half dozen times every morning before we started. And then I'd say, okay, I'm good. Grab the camera. We'll start from the top. Um, but just the, the top was difficult too. So, but the top <laughs> I just had figured out, um, and it was just about putting them all together, I guess. But once I kind of, once I had a kind of good idea of what that second half was going to be like, it made the one in 30 attempts that I could get to that point, uh, much more likely that I was going to now make it to the end. But I guess what maybe sets it apart from, from like climbing or maybe another sport where once you kind of figure it out, if you're not too tired, you can maybe have a better chance of getting it every time. I don't know. I'm just kind of assuming in some scenarios with this, with balancing on something, whatever sport you're doing, you know, you can figure out the tricks you need to do, but you know, balance is, I guess balance is still balance. And so you're, you're just, you're never guaranteed that it's going to work out. And so that's why you see that, you know, I fell off the very, even, you know, I had attempts where I almost came off the end and then the next attempt I came off the very beginning of the rail. So, so yeah, just, it, it was, it was really tough start to finish. It was the second down going really fast into the last kink was definitely the hardest part, but the, it was such a mind game because, because I, every single time I had to be a hundred percent focused and maintaining that focus for hours at a time, days on end is like very mentally draining. Let alone, I mean, again, as I'm watching it yesterday, it's like, man, these kinked rails, it's like you come off the wrong way and you hook your ski and you just completely destroyed your knee or broke a femur. I mean, this is all in play every single attempt, at least at least to my eyes. So you're, you're welcome to correct no. me if you're like, you know, uh, no, you don't get it or I'm a pro here. But like, honestly, man, like, this is consequential. Yeah, no, I, uh, the fear never went away. Just the focus had to, I had to maintain focus so that it, it, I could, the focus could overcome the fear every single hit. Because it was, even though it was not a giant feature, uh, you know, you, I was getting going pretty quick and you're going right, the rail looks like a wall every time. And if you come off inside, you're going to slam your shins, knees, or hip, like, or like, you know, you're going to taco. Or it, it, it was, yeah, it was very intense and, not fun. And this might be egotistical, but sometimes when I'm struggling with like my classwork or something, and I'm like, I don't think I can do this. I, I sometimes go and watch just that like six minute segment. I think it's around like eight minute 18 or something. So I've literally gone back and just watched that and been like, all right, that was harder than what I'm trying to do now. Like you can do this, dude. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I think again, if anybody thinks we're overstating this, go watch it. It is remarkable. It is truly remarkable, and, and it should provide you a ton of confidence, uh, whatever you're doing. Speaking of which, as you said, like you are actually kind of literally in the middle of uh, studying for a test. May I ask, what, what is this test? And is this tomorrow? Uh, yeah, it's tomorrow. Um, I'm taking like the big, so uh, like I was saying, I love kind of going all in with whatever I'm doing. Uh, and so I'm like super stoked on my computer science education right now. And one of the big defining classes you take in computer science is called algorithm complexity. Uh, and you learn all this crazy math in your lower classmen years so that you can understand what's happening in this class. 
and it's kind of the computer scientists, computer scientists or computer science class. Um, and so it's, it's all about uh, the complexity refers to time complexity or kind of the, the time it takes for an algorithm to run. Because, uh, you know, computer scientists are all about uh, creating a, a process or a, a number of steps that accomplish something. That's what computers do. Uh, and, and comparing them to one another and, and finding the most efficient and just the best way to do it. That's, that's what computer science is all about. And so that's what this class does. We, uh, sorting, is, sorting is an algorithm or there are sorting algorithms uh, that sort numbers. It's a very common thing that you see in computer science. A lot of times you have a collection of numbers that need to be organized and they're not, they start out unorganized. Uh, and there's just a million different ways you can sort a list. Uh, and so we want to be able to compare those. So it's about pulling apart these algorithms and turning them into mathematical equations so that we can compare them to one another and figure out uh, their asymptotic growth, which is uh, as these lists grow towards infinity, uh, what are we going to see the time it takes as these as they grow? What are we going to see the time that it takes for these algorithms to complete do? Uh, and so if we can find basic truths about how these algorithms operate, the fundamental things they do uh, that are similar to one another, then we can compare them and, and choose which one is best. Uh, and so you do a lot of weird, it's really proof-based mathematics, uh, which tends to be more conceptual and more difficult, uh, for me at least, because it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's just difficult to understand. So I'm really excited about this class, but it's very, very challenging for me. Uh, and so I have an exam on it tomorrow. <laughs> so in this field of algorithmic complexity, are there currently then some sort of common applications that this area of study is already going toward? Or is the idea that by studying algorithmic complexity, we may stumble upon and discover applications so so more the second one uh algorithm complexity is kind of core to the general idea of computer science as a whole so it's 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 less of a subset and more of a it more encompasses uh whatever subset you're going to get the reason it's so so important in computer science and uh so so much the core of computer science is because no matter what field you get into algorithm complexity is going to be really important because it, it is the heart and soul in my eyes. And I think a lot of people would agree with me of computer science, whether you're building a rocket or, you know, making a video game or trying to do something on Insta, like change the Instagram algorithm. So people see your posts more or something. All of those people are taking into consideration the algorithm they're going to use to do that and what the constraints and what the costs of those algorithms are. Um, so it's not really helping me specialize yet, but it's, uh, it's the last and most high level class that, uh, every computer scientist must take because, uh, because it's going to come up in everything we do. When does the NASA internship start? It starts, uh, I think August 26th. So, you know, just like a month away. So you'll do that through the fall and then you're back filming and hitting rails. Yeah, uh, it lines up perfectly, actually, where um, I can just take a semester of school off and it ends it ends actually before my my fall semester would have ended anyway, just a little earlier, uh, like just before winter gets started. So 
I'll go down there and uh, hopefully get to write some code for this this system that they're working on called FOSS. Uh, it's a fiber optic sensor system. Uh, and then I'm just going to hopefully start planning my season in the last few weeks that I'm down there uh, so that I can just hit the ground running, which is the case every year for me. Uh, I'm always worried my sponsors will be like, uh, are, are you quitting or something? And I'm just I'm always like, no, I most of my career I've been in school like, you know, 17 to 22 i was in school all these months uh you know up through the end of november every time and it, it's it's never i mean my my sponsors are all so rad and so supportive but i want to keep them happy you know but it, it's it's not going to be any different than any others any other season i've done where i'm very very busy up till the end of the fall and i just work extra hard that couple weeks of crossover and make sure that i hit the ground running as soon as winter starts and and just go straight into it and it's a very harsh transition uh going from a very steady nine to five feel of, of classwork or i guess in this case it'll be an internship and then all of a sudden i am on the other side of the country filming rails and there's no schedule and i'm my i'm my own boss now and uh it's nice but it's it's very intense too i mean you sound busy but like, say for this coming winter, are you able to be doing much reading, you know, when you're on the road or traveling or is most of the time spent just like exhausted from a day of filming? So you're having some drinks, maybe looking at some edits, but I'm a little bit curious to hear, you know, you, you mentioned that you were a, a lit and film major. Are you still reading? And if so, is the reading you get in time for fiction or nonfiction, or is it mostly computer stuff? What's that look like? I bounce around all over the place. Um, I definitely, I definitely, it's not good because a traditional student would probably be doing side projects or an internship or self-study throughout their summer. Whenever, because you know, my summer break is my winter break, kind of, uh, to keep their skills up to par. And honestly, when you're on the road and traveling. And, and skiing all day, every day and exhausted. It's just, it's unrealistic to think you can come home and work on something. Um, and so, you know, I love to read. So I, I'm, I, I actually don't read when I'm in class during the school year. I don't read at all because I'm reading textbooks and stuff, but uh, I, I love the winter because reading is a great way to pass the time when you're traveling. Uh, and I read whatever the heck I want. Uh, I, I did read, you know, I'm, I'm excited about computer science right now. So I have been reading some nerdy books, uh, but I read all sorts of stuff. I, I love I love Star Wars fiction. I read read a bunch of Star Wars fiction. I love to surf, so I've read a bunch of surf books. Uh, so I, you know, I just I read for pleasure, and a lot of times it ends up being school related stuff. <laughs> Where do you see this going? I you've already established that you are the sort of person, uh, and I tend to really like this kind of person who is ready to say yes at a, at, at a moment's notice to the right opportunity. But I guess, you know, knowing that there might be a left turn coming for you at some point, um, I guess I am curious, as you think about the next five to 10 years, what currently at least seems like an interesting kind of trajectory for you? That is the real question, man. You just, you just nailed it. Um, you know, I've always... I've always liked to plan my life out in stages. I've always liked to have, if you'd asked me at any point in my life, I could tell you like a four to five year plan that I had something that like big picture that I'm always working towards, you know, every you take the days one step at a time, but think about the, 
the big step that those are working towards is what I've always thought. Uh, and so, you know, I haven't finished the last cycle and the current cycle is to continue skiing as hard as I can and finish this, this degree, uh, is like right now the, the main focus is, uh, I really, I really want to put out a really well-rounded video segment. Uh, I bought a snowmobile and skied a decent bit of backcountry this past year. And I feel like talking about specialization, uh, another thing that's died is kind of the well-rounded segment. So uh, something on my radar is is trying to put that segment, maybe that like last great segment, not that I'm ending, but like get another rounded segment that I haven't had maybe in a while together and, and also finish school. But that's kind of part of my current five-year plan. And I, I haven't developed the next five-year plan. Uh, so I, I don't know, man. Yeah, like you can't, it's fun to try to diversify yourself and do all these things, but eventually they need to lead somewhere. And I'm still kind of figuring that out. I'm, I love skiing, man. And I, you know, I was just skiing the other day at Wendell's and I, it's such a big part of my life. I don't want it to end. But on the other side, I, I'm developing these other skills that I love as well. Uh, and they're gonna, right now they haven't butted heads and it's, it's sweet, but <laughs> I, I think what you're getting at is that eventually they, they're going to, I'm going to need to make some kind of decision and I haven't yet, but I think if you want to say 10 years down the line, yeah, I don't see myself. I'm not, I think the, the real legends in our sport are the ones that are lifelong committed. I call them lifers. Tanner Hall is a lifer. Henrik's a lifer. Like these guys bleed skiing. Uh, and that's why they've made maybe the biggest contributions to the sport and they're like idols to me uh and i'm i don't think it's something you choose so i'm I'm okay with it that i'm not but i have a lot of other interests and so i i don't see myself being a professional skier forever i it's a gift that i'm in the position i'm in and been able to be a pro skier and i do not want to give it up anytime soon but uh i recognize that you know down the road whether it's a few years or closer to like a I'm, I'm sure I, don't, I guess I don't see myself being a professional skier when I'm 40. So sometime in the next 10 years, probably. But, you know, when I I still feel like I can do things that will turn a few heads here or there. And while that's still the case, I don't I think it would be a disservice to myself and the younger me that's cultivated whatever this is <laughs> to, to, to give it up. So I'm going to keep trying to walk the walk the line, man, as long as I can uh, and, and reassess. I get when, when I finish school. I'll reassess for sure. Uh, but for now, uh, <laughs> I'm walking the line. I, I think you're doing it real well. I really appreciated this conversation and uh, appreciate you making the time when you've got some big tests in front of you and uh, certainly wish you all the success with this uh, this NASA gig. And uh, I would love to hear more about how that went down and, and uh would love to talk again about um yeah what's coming on the horizon yeah i'd love to do that thank you so much this is uh it was uh it was a pleasure chatting with you so thank you happy studying and uh we'll talk to you again soon all right take care that's it for this edition of the blister podcast thanks to lj for the conversation thanks to luke alley for producing this episode and as always thanks to you for listening take care and we will talk to you again next week 